As we come to God's word tonight, will you please join me in a word of prayer? Father, tonight we come with thankful hearts for this one who loved us, who laid aside his crown for my soul, who bore the dreadful curse for us. And we thank you tonight that that curse has been abolished through the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. We stand forgiven, accepted in the beloved one, clothed in his righteousness. We thank you tonight again for such mercy and grace that you've had upon us in Christ. And Lord, we come tonight and ask again that you would bless our time as we open the scriptures together. Lord, may we come to know you better. Help us to grow in grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, the things that he has done for us, and that we might seek to walk even as he walked, to seek to emulate him, to be like him. Lord, we thank you for, again, your care and provision for us. And uh, we gladly acknowledge that our very life is in your hands. Every breath that we take is a gift that comes from you. You are the sovereign Lord over our life. And tonight we think of Rodney and we think of the needs that he has. And uh, we just pray that you will strengthen him and help him and restore health to him and strength and being able to go back to work. I pray that you would just provide what his needs are. We thank you for just preserving him through this uh, surgery. And Lord, tonight, um, we thank you again, too, for Kara. Thank you for your protection upon her. And uh, we thank you that Caleb came through his surgery well. Thank you for Tim coming through his well. And thank you that Brooke is making progress. May you continue to help them and strengthen them. And Lord, we're thankful that as we groan in these physical bodies that we have, that we agree with Paul that we are able to groan in hope. We're able to groan in anticipation of the day when you're going to make all things new and we will receive a glorified body and we shall receive the redemption of our bodies as you have promised in your word. We're thankful for that. And now, Lord, as we again open the scriptures, we ask you to give grace and help both in the hearing and the preaching of your word. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. I you to take your Bible and turn, if you will, to, first of all, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and we'll be looking at a, a verse there, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Tonight I want to speak about, we've been doing a study on the doctrine of God the incomparable greatness of God. The psalmist says, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. His greatness is unsearchable. But there are things that we know that he's revealed of himself to us through his son, through the word of God. And uh, so we are privileged to be able to know him as he has revealed himself to us. We're not left to wonder, but he is given us a revelation of himself. And so we've been talking about various attributes of God, 
we've talked about the fact of, of the greatness of God. Uh, when we think about his greatness, that he stands alone. He is the eternal, self-existent God. He is not dependent upon anything. He has life within himself. He is self-sufficient. And so we've considered that. We've considered his sovereignty. And then we've begun to look at some of these other attributes that uh, are true of our God. And we spoke in a few weeks ago about the holiness of God. And we see this in Isaiah 6, that God is absolutely holy. And as I think it was Stephen Charnock said, that this attribute is the one attribute that sheds its luster on all of the other attributes of God. Everything that we think of when we think about God, we can add the word holy to it. His holy justice, his holy wrath, his holy love. And uh, so these are... um, things that we've talked about this far, thus far. Last week, or yeah, two weeks ago, we talked about the overflowing love of God. How God in the Trinity has this inner Trinitarian delight and love for each of the members of the Godhead. This is spilled out in his creation. This love overflows in his creation. And he has made Adam and Eve to be in his own image and likeness, to be able to enjoy fellowship and communion and love with one another, with others, and with their God. And then we see this overflowing love even after the fall, this love that is a redeeming love. But I want to talk tonight about, uh, it's related to the holiness of God, and it is this theme of the attributes of God's wrath, or his justice, or his retribution. And I've entitled this sermon, God the Avenger of Sinners. It's kind of a sobering title. But as we think about God, we need to understand that he is a God who is holy. He is a God of wrath. He is a God of justice. And as we watched the news this past week and we see the events that unfolded with regard to Hamas and the barbaric things that happened last week, there's something within us that says there needs to be justice in in our world for such things as this. And this is not new in history. We're well aware of the Hitlers and the Mussolinis, the Stalins of history, And uh, we recognize, according to the Bible, that God's wrath is something that is real, that God will one day make men to give an account, and there is a judgment that is to come for sin. Now, sometimes people, when they talk about the wrath of God, don't like to speak about this. I remember speaking with a lady. She said, I don't like the God of the Old Testament. I don't like all those judgments and the wrath of God. I don't like that. Um, and yet the God of the Old Testament is the very God of the New Testament. There's no difference. And when we think about the wrath and the justice of God, it's not a dark side of God. It's not something that we have to apologize for when we are representing God or we are speaking for God. Um, This is something that is true of him, that he has holy wrath, holy judgment. Here in 1 Thessalonians 4 and in verse 6, um, 
Paul is speaking about what the will of God is, and it is our sanctification. And in verse 4, that you should know how to possess your own vessel in sanctification and honor, or to abstain from sexual immorality and, and not live in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. And then we have this statement in verse 6, that no one should take advantage and defraud his brother in this matter because the Lord is the avenger of all such as we also forewarned you and testified. Here is this statement that is made by Paul. We see it in the book of Naaman as well. That God is the avenger, the Lord is the avenger of all such. Those who are guilty of, here in this context, sexual immorality. God's not indifferent to that. God is the avenger of all such. He is the avenger of sinners. This Greek word that is used here is made up of a little preposition and the word justice. And it is the idea that it is that which proceeds out of justice. It's the word out of and the word justice. And when we think about the judgment of God, the God being an avenger, it is that which proceeds from justice. It's the just response of a duly established authority towards injustice and what is wrong. In Luke 18, 3, we have this account where Jesus gives this story of the unjust judge and the widow who keeps coming, and she says, avenge me of, of my adversary. Avenge me. Take action. And she keeps pleading with him till finally, because she troubles me, he says, I will avenge her. I'll, I'll deal with this situation. And so... When we think about avenging, it is that which proceeds out of justice. It has to do with dealing justly with a particular situation. So he uses his position to get what is right for this lady and to avenge her of her enemies. Robert Raymond, in his systematic theology, said this, God's wrath must not be construed in any measure as capricious, uncontrolled, or irrational fury. That's the way sometimes people think about it, but it's, it's not that. Nor is God himself malicious, vindictive, or spiteful. God's wrath is simply his instinctive, holy indignation and the settled opposition of his holiness to sin which because he is righteous expresses itself in judicial punishment. He is holy. He must respond to sin. There's a rebellion against him. And so there is this, he says, settled opposition. This is a settled opposition of his holiness with regard to sin. Turn back, if you will, to Naaman, if you would. And we have these words here by Naaman in God is speaking about judgment that is going to come upon the Ninevites. Remember, Jonah had gone there. There had been a revival, and this is sometime after that, and they've returned back to their wicked ways. And 
Here is an indictment that judgment is coming. God's wrath will be upon his enemies. We read in verse 2, God is jealous and the Lord avenges. There's the word, to avenge. The Lord avenges, uh, avenges and is furious. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries and he, reverses, he reserves wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power and will not at all acquit the wicked. So although God is slow to anger, slow to wrath, he will avenge all sin. And we have that word there, this idea of avenge or vengeance. We have that stated there three times. And he, he will not at all acquit the wicked. There will be judgment and there will be a day of accounting. Roger Nicole, who was, I think he is with the Lord now, but he was a well-known Reformed Baptist theologian. He said this, the idea of God's wrath is stubbornly rooted in the Old Testament, where it is referred to 585 times by no less than 20 different Hebrew words that underscore God's indignation against sin and evil. This is God's indignation against sin and evil. God will by no means clear the guilty. So it flows out of who he is, the the very essence of who God is, who is holy, who is pure, um, and he is going to judge. He's going to judge sinners. And again, this is not something that that we need to apologize for. This is something that's true of God. Now, as we think about human judges, um, we don't look at them as being monsters. If they have sentenced someone to life in prison or maybe even the death penalty because they have cut off the heads of babies, as we saw last week, we would not think that person a monster who would exact judgment for such heinous crimes as that. And so a judge can, can, can inflict severe sentences for crimes that are, are committed, and he's not a monster. He's a man that will go home at night and hold his kids on his lap and tuck them into bed. So he's not a mon- monster, and neither is God. He will by no means clear the guilty. There is judgment that is going to come. So we see the fact that God is an avenging God. We also see that sinners are exposed to God's avenging wrath. What does every sin deserve? This is the catechism question. Every sin deserves the wrath and the punishment of God, both in this life and in the life to come. This is what our sins deserve, isn't it? We deserve the wrath of God. And we have all sinned, as Romans clearly tells us. We have all sinned and we have all fallen short of the glory of God. We have failed to glorify him. We failed to treasure him, esteem him, to love him above everything else. Romans 1 shows us that we worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. And we're all guilty of this. We've all sinned. We've all fallen in Adam, but we've also sinned in our own lives. 
So there is this universal indictment that is over our fallen race that all have sinned, that all have fallen short of the glory of God, and there is none that is righteous, no, not one. So as sinners, we stand exposed to the avenging wrath of God, the avenging justice of God. In Ephesians 5, 6, Paul talks there about uh, sins, and he refers to fornication and uncleanness, covetousness. He says, don't even let it be named among you, neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather the giving of thanks. For this you know that no fornicator, no unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Don't listen to those empty words words that have no substance, no reality, no truth in them. There's a lot of preachers that preach that today, that God's just a God of love. He's not a God of wrath and judgment, and you know we shouldn't incite fear and trembling in people. You know, Paul says, don't be deceived, because, because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Galatians 3.10 says, For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. And we've all fallen short. We're all guilty. And so, Psalm 11, verse 6, Upon the wicked he will rain coals, fire and brimstone and a burning wind shall be the portion of their cup, this cup of judgment. So all of us stand exposed to God's avenging wrath. But another thing that we see is that there is a final day that God has appointed in which his avenging wrath will come upon this world. Romans 1 talks about presently now the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven. There's a sense in which even now in our world, that, that God's wrath is being witnessed. It is being seen. And some of the ways uh, are revealed there in Romans 1. Men are receiving in their bodies the results of their sin. And yet there is also an appointed day of wrath. Listen to Paul as he speaks in Acts 17.31, that God has appointed a day. He's appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man that he has ordained. And of course, that man is the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 2.5, to those whose hearts are hardened and impenitent, he says, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath, and the revelation of the righteous judgment of God. The present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. There is a day, Paul says, on the horizon when there is going to be a judgment. And to the impenitent, they are storing up wrath. It's 
the idea of like putting money in a piggy bank. They're storing up little by little with their sins. They're storing up wrath for the day of wrath when God will judge through the one whom he has appointed. So Jesus said, I say to you that every idle or careless word that men may speak, they will give an account of it in the day of judgment. It's a sobering thought, isn't it? Every idle, careless word, even that, there will be a day of counting, a day of judgment. So we need to be aware of this fact, that there is going to be judgment. I remember listening to a sermon when I think I was in seminary, and it was from Ecclesiastes 8, 11, and 12, where it says this, because the sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily or quickly, therefore the hearts of the sons of men are given more fully to do evil. When there is not an immediate judgment from God, what does that do in the minds of people? Yeah, yeah, they just think, well, you know, I've gotten away with this. I must be okay. God's not going to do anything. And so there is this false conclusion that, that comes about. That delayed recompense means no recompense. Delayed recompense means no recompense. And that's a false conclusion. Even though God delays and God is slow to anger, that doesn't mean that there will be no recompense. And so Peter writes about this in 2 Peter 3. Knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days and walking according to their own lust and saying, where's the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For this they willfully forget. What's the one thing they forget? There was a day when God stepped into time in history and brought about a judgment. It was in the day of Noah. There was a judgment when by the word of God, the heavens of old and the earth standing out of the water and in the water by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. There is coming a day of judgment, and God has already intervened in time and history in various times to bring out about a temporal judgment, as in the days of Noah, Sodom, and Gomorrah. Things have not always continued from the beginning as they are, and there is coming a day of judgment. And as we think about this, we see that the, the nature of this judgment of God is it's of an eternal nature. And this is hard, I think, for us to get our minds around. But Jesus spoke very clearly in verses like Matthew 25, verse 41, separation of the sheep and the goats. Then he will also say to those on the left hand, depart from me, you cursed, into what? Into everlasting fire. To everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. In verse 46, these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal 
life. 2 Thessalonians 1.9, These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Somebody said once, I don't remember who it was, but said, heaven is the presence of God with a mediator. Hell is the presence of God without a mediator. It is God's judgment that is being poured out for just judgment upon sinners, and it is an everlasting, an everlasting judgment. It never ends. The worm is never, uh, the fire is never quenched. I don't know about you, but that it's hard for me to, to comprehend that. And I think it's the reason it's hard for us is we don't really understand fully the heinousness of what sin is nor do we understand the absolute holiness of God. But this is, I think, clearly what the word of God says, that there is this eternal avenging wrath of God upon those who are sinners, who are rebels against God. In Jude 1.7, it talks about Sodom and Gomorrah, that they gave themselves over to sexual immorality and they've gone after strange flesh, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. And so, again, we see that this judgment of God is a serious matter and has eternal consequences. But as we think about this as believers, we need to see that God is both the avenger of sinners, but he's also the savior of sinners. So it is in the gospel that God saves sinners from himself. Do you realize that? That in the gospel, God is saving us from himself, from his avenging wrath that is really due to us, that we really do deserve. And God is rescuing us. We are liable to his justice. We are liable to his wrath. But in the gospel, God rescues us from this wrath that we justly deserve, this eternal damnation. And so we see that the gospel of God, the gospel of, of God avenges and God saves. In this gospel, God will avenge our sins but it's just not in us. He's going to avenge our sin and show wrath towards us, but not in us, but in the place of our substitute, the Lord Jesus Christ. So it is in the gospel that God will pursue his own son to death so that we might be pardoned, that we might be forgiven Remember in the Old Testament, there was what was called the avenger of blood. If someone had killed a family member of yours and it was a premeditated murder that they had killed them, then you as the avenger of blood were able justly to be able to pursue that person and pursue them and, and take their life. Now, there were cities of refuge in case there was, you know, uh, just so they could get justice if there was injustice being carried out by this perpetrator. But 
they had the ability to pursue justice on behalf of a kinsman. And this is what we see God doing on our behalf. That God pursues his own son, avenges our sin in him, that we might be forgiven, that his wrath might be satisfied in his son. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to go our own way. And the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. God spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. So as we think about God's avenging wrath against sin, he's going to avenge all sin in one of two places either in the place of the guilty sinner himself or in the place of the sinner's substitute, that of the Lord Jesus Christ. And for those who have fled to Christ, they find in him this wonderful truth that God's wrath has been satisfied for their sin. One of the beautiful words in the New Testament is the word propitiation. God has made him, Jesus Christ, to be sin for us. He was made to be the propitiation for our sins. He himself bore the wrath of God in our place, in my stead. And he fully satisfied God's righteous judgment, his righteous wrath in our place. And he paid it in full so that God is now free to extend grace and mercy to the believing sinner. This all by his grace. We sang just a few minutes ago, what wondrous love is this, O my soul? O my soul, what wondrous love is this that caused the Lord of bliss to bear the dreadful curse for my soul, for my soul, to bear the dreadful curse for my soul. When I was sinking down, sinking down, when I was sinking down beneath God's righteous frown, Christ laid aside his crown for my soul. This is the great truth of the gospel. God remains the holy and just God that he is when he saves us because it is his own son that has made propitiation for our sins. And so tonight, as we think about this just, just wrath of God, his avenging wrath, it is one of his attributes. It is a holy attribute, and it is something that is to, he is worthy of praise for, and Isaiah speaks about that. In Isaiah 5, verse 20, woe to those who call, no, that's not it. Um, I forget where it is, but it says that God will be exalted in judgment. He will be praised. He will be exalted in the last day when he judges his enemies. He's worthy of praise for that. And uh, so we worship God as the holy God that he is. But I hope that we too, if we're a believer in Christ, that we're lost in wonder of what he did to save us from his own avenging wrath as it was poured out upon his own 
dear beloved son. Well, let's stand and we'll be dismissed with a word of prayer. Our Lord and our God, we bow humbly before you tonight. Just barely scratching the surface of this truth that you are holy, just, you are God of wrath, and you must and will avenge all sin, either in the place of the sinner or in the place of the sinner's substitute. And tonight we worship you, we bow before you. We pray that you will help us, that we may treasure this salvation. We would not take for granted what you have done for us. We thank you for Jesus Christ, the Savior, the friend of sinners. There is one here tonight that is not a follower and a lover of Christ. May they flee to him and find life in him, forgiveness of sin, propitiation for their sins. Go with us as we go into this new week. Lord, may we seek to honor you in all that we do and all that we say. We pray and ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Lord bless you all. Have a good week.